This morning, I want to minister for a little while through a message I'm calling The Innocence of Righteousness. Today, we celebrate Veterans Day. It's a day when we honor the men and women of this country, the armed forces of this country. Did you know that it was 100 years ago today that World War I ended? It was November 11th of 1918. And when that war ended, millions of men, perhaps women as well, veterans from many countries returned home to their families. They may no longer been in conflict physically, but many of them came home with conflict emotionally because of the things they witnessed, because of the hardships they had to go through. They came home that way. It was PTSD before they even had a name for it back then, and nobody just knew how to label it. As a country, we celebrated our freedom, and we celebrated a time of peace. Soldiers rested from their frustrating and exhausting mission that they had been on for several years. But as I was thinking about that, I couldn't help but think that time, time has a way of transforming the panoramic view of the family portrait for every single one of those soldiers have slipped into eternity. There's not one that lives today. I see evidence of a great awakening that is taking place right now, I believe, in the body of Christ as the revelation of absolute innocence is quieting, frustrated, and exhausted hearts even within the church. And as I was meditating on that last night, I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, the canon of condemnation is silenced through embracing the innocence of righteousness. You see, all these cannons are going off in our heart, in our mind, in our emotional realm. But as you meditate and you embrace the revelation of the truth that we've been made innocent, we have been declared innocent by Jesus' blood, those cannons grow silent. He said to me, the artillery of anxiousness is taken away. The grenade of guilt fails to detonate in the midst of such innocence. The flamethrower of fear is extinguished in the presence of innocence. And the bayonet of bondage loses its edge and it loses its point in the presence, in the revelation of the innocence that we have. I want you to pick up your minds for a second here this morning. Think beyond your normal paradigm and just think about the reality that you have been declared innocent, totally innocent in the eyes of God. It's a powerful thought. The body of Christ hasn't all arrived there yet because there's days where they feel innocent and there's days where they feel guilty. There is not one day that goes by I feel guilty. Sometimes, like I've said before, I almost feel guilty for not feeling guilty. It's a play on words, but I think you understand where I'm at because I go, Daddy, shouldn't I feel something about this or something, you know? Because I don't always have perfect thoughts. I don't always have perfect actions and perfect words and all these things. Well, my mother used to say it like this. She always used to say, misery loves company, right? And listen, the devil is a miserable person. He's a miserable being, but he's not getting my company. No, 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 no. I'm with the Lord on this one right here. The word innocence is synonymous with words like, listen to me carefully, blameless. When God says you're innocent, he says you're blameless. 
It's synonymous with words like guiltless. And friends, let me tell you something. It is synonymous with the word purity. If you just want a real simple word, it's synonymous with the word purity. I love that. What I want you to see through the message today is that believers are as pure as the driven snow. We are. We are as innocent as newborn lambs. In Christ, we are perfect. See, that's a hard one for us. I would encourage you, if you don't believe that, I would encourage you to start telling yourself that in the mirror. Huh, Papa? And when you go look in the mirror, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I am perfect in your eyes. In Christ, we are perfect. Now listen to me carefully. Our flesh counts for nothing. There are people that won't like that. Oh, I mean, my flesh counts for nothing. Here's the good news about that. That means on your best day, when your flesh is involved and it's doing good things, your flesh does not add an ounce to your innocence in Christ. Oh, but conversely, on those bad days, or those bad moments, let me tell you something, that we act up in the flesh, it's in those times that our flesh does not subtract from our innocence. We are innocent because of Jesus' blood. We are not innocent because of anything we've done. Innocence is made possible only through God's righteousness. Well, listen to me carefully. God's righteousness is given as a gift. It's not something we earn. We see this truth in Romans chapter 5 and verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Now here is a man named Paul, the Apostle Paul. He knew Christ and he knew his heart. And when he was sanctioned to write the Bible, he listened to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit said, I want you to pen these words, Paul. This wasn't Paul's idea. This was the Holy Spirit's idea. And so who are these two men he's talking about? He's talking about the first Adam and the last Adam. Now we know that the first Adam really messed things up, didn't he? And we know the power of that sin. We know the power of that destruction. The fact that it was done thousands of years ago, yet people would be born today still with Adam's blood. But the good news is, there was a last Adam. Not a second Adam, not a third Adam, but a last Adam. And friends, I want to tell you something. If Adam's blood, if Adam's DNA was that powerful, how much more powerful than the precious Son of God's blood who hung on a tree for you and me? So he's saying in here, he says, For by the trespass of the one man, death reigned. In other words, death set up this kingdom. It says, I have a kingdom called death, and everybody's going to go through it. Now, how did that happen? It happened at a tree. There was high treason committed that day. And it set up a kingdom of death through that one man. But the Apostle Paul says, how much more will those who receive God, look at that, those words, abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness, or another way to say it, the gift of innocence, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. As much as you and I could do nothing to dilute Adam's blood, Adam's sin, as much as we could do nothing to change that, carry that over into the realm of where we are in Christ, there is nothing we can do to dilute or contaminate the blood of Jesus Christ. It is that powerful. You can't change it. It's that powerful. So let me ask you the question. How does a person reign in life? How do they set up a kingdom in life? How do they get along in life? How do they enjoy life and see good days? How do you enjoy life like that when your enemy doesn't want the world war to end? That's a good question, isn't it? 
You see, when the World War I ended, people had to come and sit down at a table somewhere. It wasn't just as we went in and annihilated a certain people, there was nobody left to fight with. No, there were people left to fight with on all sides. But we came to an agreement. What are we doing here? You know, the Bible says, what is it that causes fights among you? And that it answers that question. It says, you want something, but you don't get it. I guess maybe a little bit of war for a few years and death and everything else has a way of maybe changing your wants, changing your mind. You weren't willing to sit down at the table and talk peace in the beginning, but after three, four years, now you're willing to sit down, but nonetheless, it ended. So the question, how does a person reign in life when the enemy doesn't want the war to end? Listen to me. We reign in life by realizing we don't have to have an absence of conflict in order to reign. Our reigning is in Christ. That means no matter what we're going through, no matter what challenge we face, we can reign in life. I'm not waiting for this to end and that to get better in order to reign. I reign every day in life. Because I'm reigning in Christ. Why? Through the gift of righteousness, the Bible says, we reign in this life. Not just in the life to come, this life. Hallelujah. Nellie Connolly was the first lady of Texas in 1963. She sat in the seats right in front of John F. Kennedy and Jackie Onassis Kennedy as they were making their way through the city of Dallas. She was just off to the president's side, just in front of him. The cheers from the crowd were just deafening as tens of thousands of people came to celebrate that president. Nellie turned around to the president who was sitting behind her and she made this comment. Mr. President, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you which President Kennedy responded with by saying these words, No, you certainly can't. Those were the last words from our 35th president. When the enemy tries to drag us into a conversation in our mind, especially about our righteousness, especially about our position in Christ, especially about our innocence. Our response to him is, no, you certainly can't. When guilt and shame and fear and condemnation want to schedule a go-to meeting with you on Sunday morning or whatever day it is, our response is, no, you certainly can't. Let me tell you something, friends. I don't listen to what the enemy or the flesh says pertaining to my righteousness. I listen to what my daddy says, and my daddy tells me that I have an eternal righteousness. One that doesn't chip, fade, crack, peel, you just name it, go flat. It is an eternal righteousness. Oh, Fred, it has perfect landings every time. We see that eternal righteousness in John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What an amazing scripture. I think sometimes the church feels like we've wore this scripture out. We have not wore it out. You just need to wear it in, inside, wear it in. I had a man after I had ministered for a lot of months come up to me and said, I like your style and stuff like that, but when are you going to talk about something other than the love of God and the grace of God? I looked at him and I said, what else is there to talk about? He said, I don't know. I said, neither do I. If you get tired of the love of God and the grace of God, you know what? It's just because you're not established there. You're allowing the enemy to come along and drag you into a go-to meeting too often. I want to encourage you, when you study your Bible, don't just read it, but meditate on it and get a concordance out. Look below the scriptures. Look below the words in particular to see what do they mean. What do they mean? Because there's a deeper meaning in the Greek. There's a deeper meaning in the Hebrew. 
And that word believeth right there is not mental assent. That word believeth means to trust. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever trusts in him. And I intentionally put it in the PowerPoint just like that so that you could see that five-letter word begins with a cross and it ends with a cross. And look at us in the middle. See that? Friends, don't ever think it's about you. It's about him. It begins with Christ's cross and it ends with his cross. It's a finished work. No, you certainly can't were the last words President Kennedy spoke milliseconds before the bullet from Lee Harvey Oswald's gun struck him. Did you know that the president was still alive when he reached the hospital, which was only 10 minutes away? And Jackie did not leave his side, nor did she take off her suit, which was now blood-soaked and splattered with brain tissue. I thought about that, and I thought, it's the same thing they did to my Jesus. It's the same thing they did to Christ. They nailed him to a cross and splattered his blood. But what would Jesus' last words be? I'll show you what his last words would be. Right there they are. John chapter 19 and verse 30. It is finished. Let me translate that into modern day vernacular. You'll never be able to again ever say, Daddy doesn't love you. You'll never be able to say that. Look at my sacrifice. Look what's happened here today. You'll never be able to say, Daddy doesn't love you. See, I think we spend too much time thinking on how much Dallas loves us when we ought to be thinking about how much Daddy loves us. In John chapter 19, 30, you see it. It is finished. At the hospital, Jackie Onassa stood next to Lady Bird Johnson. Lady Bird Johnson was Lyndon B. Johnson's wife. And she stood right next to her. And Lady Bird Johnson asked Jackie if she wanted to change out of her blood-stained pink Chanel suit. And she refused, saying this, I want them to see what they've done to my Jack. I want them to see what they've done to my Jack. I thought about that, and the Holy Spirit took me to John chapter 20, verse 24 through 29. Now let me set this up here for a second. Jesus has been crucified, he's been buried, he's been resurrected, and he's already visited his disciples on one occasion, except Thomas wasn't there. So Jesus comes back. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. I love that about Jesus. He's always trying to end wars. He's saying, peace be with you. He said in John chapter 14, 27, he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto thee. Let not your hearts be troubled, or don't let them be fearful. Trust in me, believe in me. He says to the disciples, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. What a message all by itself. How would we ever want to doubt his love for us? How would we ever want to doubt his extravagant grace for us? He just said, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. The First Lady, Jackie Onassis Kennedy, said to Lady Bird Johnson, I want them to see what they've done to Jack. 
Jesus told Thomas, I want you to see what they've done to your Jesus. In fact, it was even a greater message. He was literally saying, I want you to see what your Jesus has done for you. See, that's even better, isn't it? Because Jesus said, no one takes my life. I lay my life down. In John chapter 6, in verse 63, Jesus said these words. He said, the Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. Now, these are the words of Jesus. He said, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. I don't think Christians have a hard time believing that the Spirit is the giver of life. That is not our problem. The part we struggle with is the second part of what Jesus said, and that is that the flesh counts for nothing. And I'll tell you why. It's because we live in a rewards-based society. We like rewards. We like good attendance rewards. We like rewards when we use our credit cards. We love rewards. We love to be recognized. We love to be held up like a trophy. Look at my perfect attendance. Look at my perfect ways. We love rewards. But Jesus said the flesh counts for nothing. Our flesh wants to contribute, and our flesh wants to be recognized. And generally, that's because we are trying to make up for one thing, one thing that we feel like we lack somewhere, and we just feel like if we can do enough in certain areas, that will make up for that one thing. We'll talk about that one thing more in a few minutes. That one area, perhaps, that we struggle in, and every believer does. We say things like, if it wasn't for that one thing. Now, we wouldn't tell another human being this, probably, but we know this in our own hearts. We, we think, if it wasn't for that one thing, then this life of innocence would make so much more sense. But my struggle is so powerful. My addiction is so strong, whatever it may be. That stronghold is so rampant in my life. That if that wasn't there, then I could really believe he loves me. Then I could really believe I'm totally innocent. We struggle a lot of times with one things. I want to show you a dollar amount on the PowerPoint. And I want you to tell me what you see in terms of the amount. I want you to look at that for a second. Let me give you some quick math. Three zeros make a thousand, four zeros make tens of thousands, five zeros makes hundreds of thousands, and six zeros makes millions. So one followed by six zeros, we would normally say, well, that's one million dollars. No, friend, that is one dollar. You see, I put a decimal after the one. And when you do that, it doesn't matter what follows it, it that decimal point, that period, whatever you want to call it, now, had there been a comma there, that would have been one million dollars. You can add zeros till the cows come home on that number right there, and you'll never increase the value of it. In the same way, our contribution to salvation doesn't matter if there's a million zeros or a million heroes after the decimal. They count for nothing to make us innocent in the eyes of our fathers. Jesus' blood is the one thing. Jesus' blood is the only thing that counts. Only thing that counts. John chapter 19 and verse 30. Again, these are the last words of Jesus Christ. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I want you to make a note here that there is a decimal, there is a period after the word, it is finished. So whatever you feel like you need to add on the other side of him saying it is finished, it counts for nothing. You'll work your fingers to the bone. You'll wear yourself out trying to add to his finished work. Jesus said it is finished. I just get so excited about the truth that he finished it. You know why? Because I can't unfinish it. You see, if there was no period there, then I go, well, now, wait a minute now, Jesus. No, he had nothing further to say. He said, it is finished, period. I don't care what you try to add to that, but, 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 no, it's finished. 
It is a finished work. And the Bible says, with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What spirit am I talking about? I'm talking about the same spirit that gives life. He had the same spirit that we have. John 6, 63 again, the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. English was not one of my favorite subjects in school, but I do know something about compound words. Compound words are when you take two or more words and you bring them together and you form one word. Like if we take the word grass and hopper and we bring them together, that's one word, that's a grasshopper. If we take base and ball and bring them together, we've got baseball. We take grand and mother and bring them together, we have grandmother. And behind that word that Jesus used when he said the flesh counts for nothing, that is a compound word in the Greek. It's very important for us to see that. It is the word udice. Udice. Udice is a Greek compound word, and it's made from two Greek words. Ude, which means not, and heis, which means one. Together they form the word udice. And what's neat about that, not only does it mean not one, when they come together, there's a synergy effect that increases the meaning. It literally, in the Greek, in the concordance, when you look it up, it says, not even one. He said, the Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't even get one vote. We just came through a voting week last week. And I don't care who the candidate was, they bound to have got at least one vote. I don't care if Mickey Mouse ran for office, Mickey Mouse would get votes. He would. I'm serious, he would. He'd get a lot of them, thousands of them, tens of thousands. You got crazy folks out there. But I'm telling you, can you imagine not getting one vote? Well, that's exactly what Jesus said when he said the Spirit gives life, but the flesh gets no votes. It doesn't get to tell me how it's finished and how it's unfinished. It gets no votes. It is finished. Ude and heis. Not even one. Powerful. John 6, 63 again. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Udice, it's a powerful word. It means not even one. Now let me ask you this question. The Apostle Paul began his writings at the book of Romans. I love Romans. Oh, I love Romans. I love the Apostle Paul. He has a heart like Christ. He's on the right side of the cross. Jesus has already been crucified and raised from the dead when he and Paul have this encounter. And so when the Apostle Paul begins to write the book of Romans, oh man, chapter 3, chapter 4, it's all about we are not righteous based on the law. We are righteous based upon faith. He talks about the faith of Abraham. He talks about faith. The same covenant that we're under. We're under a covenant of grace by faith. It's exercised. It's released by us putting our faith, putting our trust in Christ. And then he steps into chapter 5 and he's got this powerhouse. It's a smorgasbord in there. I'm telling you, it's so awesome. We see the love of God manifest. We see reconciliation. We see redemption in those scriptures. So many wonderful things. And at the end of chapter 5, he talks about how when sin abounded, in other words, he's not sweeping sin under the carpet saying, oh, don't worry about it. You'll never sin. No, he's saying, listen, you're going to sin. But he said, where sin abounds, he says, grace so much more abounds. That's what grace does. It comes along and swallows up the serpent called sin in our life. Where sin abounds, grace did so much more abound. And then he steps into chapter 6 and we see that we were crucified with Christ and we were buried with Christ and we were raised in newness of life with Christ. Oh, and then chapter 7. I love chapter 7 because you get to get rid of the first husband, Mr. Law. Oh, he's very prominent in chapter 7. But then when we step into chapter 8, finally the Apostle Paul, it's almost like he's been saving that word, udice. It's almost like it's been an ace in the hole for him. He's been waiting, but he had to build this timeline to help us see what we've got in Christ and how we got what we've got so that when we could step into chapter 8 and verse 1, we could see this word manifest for the first time. Here it is. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, 
There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Look at that. That little word no right there is the same word that Jesus used over here when he said nothing. It's udais. It means not even one. And the Apostle Paul says there is therefore not even one Not one condemnation. Nobody gets to vote against you when it comes to condemnation. Not one. No condemnation in Christ. I don't care how frequent your mistakes are or how big they are, how monumental you think they are. God is bigger than them all. Continuing, he says, for what the law was powerless to do. Do you see those words? What the law was powerless to do. Because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What He's telling us is this is how you live now in Christ. You live in the Spirit. Yeah, you may walk in a natural world, but you live in the Spirit. You're more spirit than you are than you even know. You're more spirit than you are flesh. You are a spirit being and you've been made alive in Christ. So as I was meditating on what Jesus said and then what Paul said, I thought, wow, they're pretty similar. Not only do you both use that word udais, but let's take a look at those scriptures juxtaposed. That means to compare them side by side. John chapter 6, verse 63, and then Romans 8, verses 1 through 2. Jesus said the Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. There's the word udais. In Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, therefore there is now no condemnation. There's the word udais. For those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit. Look at there. Who gives life? The same life that's up there where it says the Spirit gives life. Paul, no doubt, just reached back there and said, man, I know that was already written. Jesus, this is really good. This is what I'm saving my udais for. I'm going to show people that they've got life in Christ, and in Christ there is no condemnation. Not even one. I love it. Our flesh's contribution to the innocence of righteousness, listen to me carefully, adds as much value to our lives as the old maid card would add to the game of Rummy 500 if you were playing it. Can you imagine that? I mean, get that picture in your head. You're sitting across the table and you're getting dealt your cards. You're playing Rummy 500 and you're putting them all in order as you're getting them delivered. Yes, yes. And you're lining them up by runs and you're lining them up by suits. And all of a sudden you grab one and there's the old maid. Now, nobody in their right mind would go, well, let's just keep her off to the side. No, you wouldn't do that. Why? Because she adds no value to the game at hand. She doesn't. You would quickly reach the conclusion that that card was incompatible with the game at hand and you would immediately seek to discard her. Yet many believers refuse to discard the old covenant. Why? Why is that? I'm not telling you to not read the Old Testament. That has nothing to do with that. I love the Old Testament. I'm talking about the Old Covenant. I'm talking about the system that was set up where we had a relationship with God based upon performance. In other words, if we did good, we got good. If we did bad, we got beat. That was the system that the Israelites wanted. So why is it that many believers refuse to discard the old covenant i'll tell you why it's because well-meaning ministers stand in the pulpits of the world reinforcing a do good get blessed do bad get cursed message and you look at all the degrees behind their name and you say well surely he must know more than i know let me tell you something friends that was true under the old covenant But we are no longer under the old covenant of law. We are under the new covenant of grace. That old covenant was made obsolete 2,000 years ago. It wasn't like it was made obsolete last week. It was 2,000 years ago. 
How foolish would it be for me to walk into Walmart and go buy a shopping cart full of groceries and get up there and try to pay for it with currency that's 2,000 years old? And they'd go, what is that? It's not compatible with our currency. An old covenant is not compatible with our nature. We have a new nature in Christ. We see this truth in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13. The writer said, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one, look at those words, underscored in your heart today, he has made the first one obsolete. The first what? The first covenant. The first covenant is called the old covenant. And it says, he has made the first covenant obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. And it did disappear in those people's lifetime that were living at the time. You see, the old maid card is only compatible when playing the game of old maid. And what's interesting is even the objective of that game is to get rid of her. Nobody wants to hold on to her. We used to try to trick our brothers and sisters when we were little, we'd be playing that, and we would figure if we stick that one up, we'd have the old maid, they know we had it. We'd stick that one up in the air like that, and they'd go, well, that can't be the old maid because you're trying to trick me, so I'm gonna take that one. And it was the old maid. So we'd use this reverse psychology and the enemy's always doing stuff like that. He has these pop-ups that come up in our lives. He's always questioning, surely you can't be the righteousness of God in Christ. Surely you can't be truly innocent. Having thought like that, having did that, having said that, he's got these pop-ups like on the internet. There are always things that are always popping up. You're clicking them off all the time. We got to get into the habit of saying, no, you certainly can't. You certainly can't. Likewise, the old covenant was only relevant for Israel when she was under the old covenant. But she or we are not under the old covenant of law. We are under the new covenant of grace. We see this truth in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. Now, what does the flesh count for? Come on, help me out here. <laughs> That's right. It counts for nothing. Ishmael was born according to the flesh. That's why he didn't count. Abraham is our father, yes, but that's why the lineage didn't come through Ishmael. It came through Isaac because he was the son of promise. But his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. This is no time to abort your promises. Whatever promise God has made you, you hold on to it with all the tenacity you've got. You hang on to it with all you've got, but keep looking unto Him. Don't look at the promise. Look at the promiser, the promise keeper, the one who made the promise. Look to Him. He was born as a result of a divine promise. Now watch what he says. These things are being taken figuratively he says the women represent two covenants. Now one thing a magician will never do is show you how they did their trick. But the writer of Hebrews said, let me just pull the cover right off the table. I just want to expose everything here because you might get to the end of this thing and you might not know exactly what I'm talking about. He said, these two women I've just described, the one that's a slave and the one that's free, the one that's by the flesh, the one that's by the promise, he said, they represent two covenants. I'm telling you something that you're familiar with that you can reach and grab a hold of as a type and shadow, but I want to show you the essence of that story. These women represent two covenants. And then he says, one covenant is from Mount Sinai. Well, let me ask you a question. What happened on Mount Sinai? That's where the Ten Commandments were given. He said, one of those covenants, I'm going to draw your attention. He said, one of these covenants represents the Ten Commandments. One of them represents Mount Sinai. And watch what he says, and bears children who are to be slaves. So he tells us, if we follow that ministry of the old covenant, if we follow that ministry of condemnation, we follow that ministry of the law, that ministry of death, he says, you're going to find yourself with a slave mentality. And not a son. I am not a slave. We sing about it today. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm a son of God. You're a daughter of God. You're a son of God. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. 
And then he says, this is Hagar. Hagar was Sarah's maidservant. Hagar was Sarah's slave. She was the mother of Ishmael, the one that did it by the flesh. And he says, now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai. I think this is awesome how the writer did this. You know what he did? He reached across a vast timeline. He reached across this wonderful landscape of time, 420 years. He reached all the way back into Abraham and grabbed him with one hand. And then 420 years later, he reached over here and grabbed Moses and he brought them together. And he said, now that we've got them side by side, let me put a powerful truth in your heart. And he begins to unfold this. He said, now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and it corresponds to the city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh, the one that was born according to what counts for nothing, he says, he said that son persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. And it's always that way. In fact, he goes on to say, it is the same now. So don't think it's strange when you're out and about and people persecute you because of righteousness. They persecute you because you have a message of innocence. They persecute you because you don't fall under guilt and shame and fear and condemnation. And they persecute you for that because they don't understand that. He said it is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Now this is very, very important here. He says, get rid of the slave woman and her son for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. In other words, what he's saying for us is get rid of the slave woman mentality. Get rid of the slave son mentality. You are not a slave. You are a son. You are a daughter of the Most High King. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Oh, what an opportunity to rejoice. Getting rid of the slave woman and her son is just a parting of the waters that Sarah sang about today. That's all it is. It's a parting of the ways. It's a parting of the waters. You see, when Israel was released from Egypt, she was released out of bondage. And she had to walk through the Red Sea. She got back into bondage again in the desert, as you know. But see, when we had to walk through the Red Sea, that's Christ's blood. We don't get back into bondage in our spirit man again because we're not just natural, we are spiritual beings. He lives on the inside of us. So we've got a greater covenant. That was the old covenant they were under. We're under the new covenant. Making a way for me. You're moving mountains that I don't even see. You've answered my prayer before I even speak, all you need for me to be is still. I'll tell you, you'll be able to hear the quiet voice of the Lord if you're just still. But you can't be still if there's a war going on in a lot of people's lives because the cannons are scary and all this artillery is scary. But when you realize, what can they do to me? When you realize the innocence of righteousness lives on the inside of me, all those fears subside. They take a long walk, as I said before, on a short pier, and they never come back. What is the underlying message within that Galatians narrative that we just went through? What is the message? I mean, what are you really trying to say, Paul? What, come on, boil it down for us. I had to think about that. Paul, what are you trying to say here? He is saying we are to discard the old maid. We are to discard the old covenant. The old covenant puts us in slavery and cannot produce life and it cannot produce an inheritance. The old covenant relies on flesh and does not wait on the promise. The new covenant is born by the power of the Spirit 
I'm telling you the flesh counts for nothing. I'm as free as I've ever been because I am not counting my flesh for nothing. We are not made righteous by the obedience to 613 Jewish laws, which included the Ten Commandments, by the way. Living a new covenant life by the way of the old covenant commandments is like welcoming a parasite to come and live in your body. You see, parasites are always looking for hosts, but parasites always take and they never give you anything good back. And ultimately, they end up destroying your life if you're not careful with these things. I'm telling you, Jesus has done away with our parasite called sin so we can no longer be destroyed by sin. We no longer have to have a fear of anything. He's dealt with that on the cross. Parasites destroy their hosts just exactly the way the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of guilt, the ministry of shame destroys that precious believer, destroys that precious unbeliever even, that precious person who just doesn't know how to get rid of it. He just told us get rid of the slave woman and her son. So get rid of all in that family. Anything that does not bear life, get rid of it. And how do we get rid of it? It's not as easy as going home and going through your drawers and getting rid of stuff. We allow the truth of God, the truth that you've been made innocent in his eyes, the truth that you're flawless in the eyes of God. We allow those truths to overwhelm those areas, come crashing in like a wave and take that other stuff back out to sea where it belongs in the sea of forgetfulness, never to be brought up again. Why is the message of absolute innocence so hard for us to believe? Come on, ask that question. You say, man, I get it some days, Mark. I really do get it some days. But then there are other days, it's just so hard for me to believe how I could be innocent. I'll tell you how that happens. Because the message of innocence is continually corrupted by a contrary message. A message the enemy wants to speak in your mind, a message that was laid as a foundation as you were growing up, a message from other ministers. Listen, I don't want to throw anybody under the church bus, but I'm telling you, it's very important what we let drip in our hearts. Not to make heaven. I'll tell you what, you can go sit under anything you want and still make heaven, but you won't live life and have good days here. It makes a difference. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you have been awarded the honors of pastry chef for a very prestigious wedding. This is a great privilege and opportunity for you as you accept the responsibility to create a most decorative and sumptuous cake. You pour heart and soul into the creation of this masterpiece for the bride and groom, and you know they have many distinguished guests that will be coming. Now, this is where your creation takes an interesting whisk. Here's where it takes this interesting turn, if you will. The cake recipe calls for vegetable oil, but you are fresh out. So you substitute the vegetable oil with motor oil. <laughs> After all, come on, it's just one ingredient. So you substitute it with motor oil. Now let me ask you this question. Would you agree with me that with that sole substitution, everything else was followed to the letter, would you agree with me with that sole substitution you have perverted that cake and that is no longer fit for human consumption. You know what you've done? You've taken the innocence away from the cake. You've taken the purity away from the cake. Now I want you to carry that principle, that thought over as you consider the gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. What are these scriptures saying? They're plainly communicating the new covenant truth that if we add anything to, if we subtract anything from, 
if we multiply anything by, if we divide anything with, or we substitute anything for the gospel of grace, the gospel of righteousness, the gospel of innocence, the gospel of Christ, we have perverted the gospel. We have corrupted the gospel, and it is no longer the gospel. And those are the words, in essence, that the Apostle Paul told the Galatians in chapter 1. You go read it sometime. Friends, in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we find these words. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, I want you to see, we've been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Wait a minute. You said, wait a minute. I thought you weren't supposed to boast. Ephesians 2, 9 told us not to boast. Oh, it does. But we're not boasting in what we've done. We're boasting in what he's done. There's a big difference. We're boasting in the hope of the glory of God. But this word justified in the first verse of Romans chapter 5 comes from the Greek word dikaiao. I love this word. I haven't been here in a long time. But that word is so powerful. Dikaiao. It translates as innocence or righteousness. The word justified. We read it in the Greek. We wouldn't think innocence necessarily we wouldn't think righteousness necessarily but i'm telling you as you peel back the curtain from that word dekaio it literally reads like this therefore since we have been declared innocent through faith therefore since we have been declared righteous through faith we have peace with god through the lord jesus christ i love it you see what it does is it actually infers a transference of what is on Jesus, what is in Jesus, into us. It's not like Jesus just had extra righteousness in his pocket and he gave us some righteousness. No, he took what was in him and he transferred it into us. Awesome. For a person to become innocent when they are totally bankrupt, when they are totally corrupt, I want you to know is the greatest miracle there is that you can go from nothing to everything in Christ by faith. It is impossible in man's own doing, but all things are possible with God. Drawing your attention back to that cake, let me ask you a question. Can you imagine a man attempting to uncorrupt, unpervert that cake that has been baked with motor oil? Can you imagine someone setting out with that kind of task? it would be impossible to do because all the ingredients have melded together. They have become one together. Friends, that's the way it happened with Christ. We became one with Christ in Him. Therefore, we are no longer perverted in our spirit, man. We can no longer be corrupted in our spirit, man, because we are one with him. We're not just in him. He's just not in us. We are one with him. Galatians chapter 1 verses 3 through 4. The apostle Paul said, grace and peace to you from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. That word deliver comes from the Greek word exireo. Exireo. It translates, I love this, to tear out. To tear out. Now, whether Jesus tore my sins out of me or he tore me out of my sins, it doesn't matter. The fact remains we have been separated from our sin. They've been torn out. That old nature has been torn out of us. Now, when you think about this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 makes sense. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Why? Because the old man has been torn out. He's been torn out. I knew a man many years ago that lost one of his fingers. And the doctor surgically removed one of his toes and transplanted it where that finger that was missing once stood. And they did a pretty nice job. It was always kind of weird to try to shake somebody's hand knowing they had a toe on their hand. But that's what they did. 
while that toe may serve the rest of that man's days as a finger, but it will always be a toe. <laughs> Once a toe, always a toe, you know? Listen, if you took that toe and you cut it off and put it in your pocket, it'd be a toe. If you threw it in the garbage, it'd be a toe. If you put it on your hand, it's a toe. It's just serving a different purpose. My point is this, in Christ, in Christ our sinful nature was not just repositioned, our sinful nature was crucified. Crucified. The result was a new creation raised in newness, in the innocence of righteousness. Friends, when Jesus hung on the cross, only his hands and his feet were nailed to the cross, but yet the whole man was crucified. The entire man was crucified. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, it says this, All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Look at those words. Not counting people's sins against them, saying, you don't get to vote. I'm not counting your sins against you. I don't care how many you had. I'm not counting them against you. And he committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ, or that we might become the innocence of God in Christ. So now the question, now the question as I'm winding down here, what if it weren't for that one thing? If that one thing was taken out of the way, maybe for one person it's a critical and judgmental heart. You don't want to be that way, but you just can't help yourself. It just seems like, and you feel so condemned when you've been critical or judgmental towards somebody. For another person, it may be a lack of faith. They feel like, man, I'm just failing in this area of my faith. I should be stronger in this area. And you allow condemnation to come in and take you to a go-to meeting. Still another, it's a recurring sin, some issue that you're having an issue with. And you think if it was just not for that one thing, that frustrating and exhausting one thing, well, I'm going to show you how Jesus dealt with that one thing through two narratives, and then I close. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now look at those next two words. One thing. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus has not been crucified when this story took place. There is still an old covenant in place. The new covenant will not come until Jesus sheds his blood. And so when Jesus was pointing him back to the law, he was not saying, this is the way my daddy's designed it for all creation for man to live. He pointed him back to the only thing he was familiar with, which was the law. So he's pointing him back and he's telling him, he's saying, listen, there's still one thing for you, friend. It's not the fact that you have money, it's the fact that money has you. That's the problem. You see, money is your God. And he said, if we'll just get that out of the way, if we can just sever that right now, if we can just take care of that right now and come and follow me. Yet the man's face fell and he went away sad for he had great wealth. In Psalm chapter 34, verse 10, the Bible says, even strong lions 
sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. I want you to see that right there. Even under an old covenant, David wrote that right there. And he was saying, listen, you've got to get by. You've got to get beyond this mentality of lacking one thing. You're no longer under the old covenant like that man was when Jesus talked to him. You're under the new covenant. And under the new covenant, we lack no good things in Christ. We have everything that pertains to life and godliness. We have an all-sufficient God who's working on our behalf, working in us for the glory of God and the cause of Christ. So, the Apostle Paul redirects our focus to this one thing. These are familiar scriptures, and I want to run ahead and give you the ending and then come back and tell you why he could have said that. Let's give you what he said first. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Oh, we were bought with a price. Brothers, I do not consider that I made it on my own, but one thing Oh, wrap your heart around that right now. Wrap your heart around that. One thing I do when I'm faced with troubled seas, when I'm faced with a troubled mind, he says, one thing I do. Because friends, let me tell you something. Trouble will come knocking on your door. It will come. And he says, when that happens, here's the one thing I do. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I forget what lies behind. See, if I spend all my time looking back, I'm going to go back. If I spend all my time looking at sin, I'm going to sin. If I keep looking at all my unrighteousness, I'm going to act that out. He said, I don't do that. I don't look at what was behind me. What's behind us? Our sins are behind us. All of our unrighteousness is behind us. He said, I look forward. I look forward. So my question is this. How could he take something that it's such a crescendo right there? It's so big. It's so powerful. This one thing I do. How could he have said that? Well, let's look at the verses that he was speaking just in front of those. My last verses. Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 9. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Who is he talking about? He's talking about anybody that wants to put you under the law. He's talking about Judaizers in particular right here. He's saying, look out for these people because you know what they're going to do? They're going to come along and say, man, you can't be that innocent. You can't be that righteous. You still got to get circumcised. You still got to obey Moses' law. And he specifically said, watch out. Some versions it says, beware. Three times it says, beware of that type of people that come along and try to do that to you. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh. There, he said it too. He picked up on what Jesus said. When Jesus said the flesh counts for nothing. Paul said, we put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself may have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, he said, I have more. He said, listen, you want to play that game? Come on, let's go ahead and play the game. I'm going to give you my long list, my long resume of where I've been and what I've done. That's what he's basically saying. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, which is the day they circumcised. Jewish babies, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now watch what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, look at those words, not having a righteousness 
of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through the faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the scriptures are these. Even as World War I ended on this very day, 100 years ago, I proclaim over us that the war against our innocence be silenced and the peace treaty that was written with Jesus' own precious blood be accepted as more powerful than any other weapon. Jesus disarmed the weapon of mass destruction called sin while simultaneously rendering the old covenant obsolete. Sin has lost its dominion over new creations through the innocence of righteousness that was given to us as a free gift. We are as pure as the driven snow. Not even one of our sins remain. All of them have been torn out. And should the enemy attempt to engage us in conversation again concerning our innocence, concerning our righteousness, our response is no, you certainly can't. Jesus declared that the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. Therefore, our hope springs to life as we embrace Jesus' last words from the cross. It is finished. Friends, it was with those words that Jesus sealed the body of Christ with the innocence of righteousness. Daddy, I have preached myself very, very happy. I'm thanking you, Father, that you take us back to our grassroots, that we don't try to move on to complicated truths and wear ourselves out when we realize we can just rest in the goodness of our Father. I want to thank you, Father. When you look at me, you see no corruption whatsoever. You don't see it, Daddy. I am complete in Christ. I'm not a half-baked cake and I'm not a corrupt cake. I am complete in Christ. I am a son of God. And Daddy, I want to thank you as this message begins to infiltrate over the walls, the same walls that the troops climbed over, those same walls that are standing today, Daddy, the trenches that people find themselves in. Father, as this message of complete innocence by righteousness begins to come in like a flood, Come in and overwhelm them that the whole world will see the beauty of the innocence of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.